Well, good morning and happy new church year. Um, for some reason, I'm thinking of that old song, Keep on the Sunny Side, which I always thought was metaphorical, but I could see some of you took it literally this morning. Uh, the, t- the, the turn of the church year is a great time to take stock. It's a time to consider the year that we've just completed, and it's a time to think about the prospects of the coming year as well. And this morning, I would like us to consider a big picture issue. How do we approach time as Christians? More specifically, how do we live into sacred time using the church calendar. Speaking of calendars, by a show of hands, how many of you still buy wall calendars and put them up in your homes? Many of you do. And of course, this time of year, you can go to the mall, you can go to a bookstore, and you can find a a wall calendar with nearly every possible theme. Sports and hobbies, pets, especially cats and dogs, (laughs) fairies, Artists and art styles, architecture and cityscapes, nature, travel destinations, space, comics or cartoons, movies and TV shows, and there are even some scripture calendars. Some calendars are very specialized. For example, one I found, the Trout of North America 2022 calendar. (laughs) Any trout aficionados in the house today? Well, this calendar is for you, if that's true. And, of course, there's a different species of trout for every month. And the month of August features the Snake River Fine-Spotted Cutthroat Trout, in case you're interested. (laughs) There are even stranger offerings for 2022. Some of them aren't appropriate to share, but I'll give a few examples. The Perfectly Pink Just Breathe. and there's a Buddha statue in the background. There's also the Tree Goats 2022 calendar, which features, I kid you not, goats in trees. And we're talking like small bush-like trees with big branches. Not, I didn't see any pictures of goats and sequoia trees. And then finally, the, the 2022 demotivational calendar. Uh, This one uh, has, uh, for uh, instance, the month of July, it has a picture of an owl with the caption, Wisdom. And then underneath it, it says, It's better to be silent and look wise than to open your mouth and show that you're really a bird brain. (laughs) Now, despite this variation, uh, the bottom page of each calendar uh, is pretty much the same, isn't it? There's a square for each day of the month. There might be holidays there. And for the most part, we follow a standardized uh, calendar, which is a good thing. It enables us to meet at church at the same time on the same day. But uh, 1 Peter 2 describes Christians as a peculiar people. And as a peculiar people, we use a peculiar calendar. We have a peculiar way of marking time. Now, of course, not all Christians use this calendar. And many of us grew up in traditions that don't follow the liturgical calendar. Some see liturgical timekeeping as kind of a throwback to the Middle Ages, an exercise in nostalgia. It's kind of quaint, maybe somewhat naive, 
because after all, we live in a scientifically precise age. And the liturgical calendar doesn't tell us what the weather's going to be like today, and it doesn't regulate our work and school schedules. But many Christians, going back to the very first centuries of the church, have used the church calendar as a tool for worship and Christian formation. So first, let me uh, just state up front the most important characteristic of our calendar. And that is, it's centered on a person. Our calendar is centered on a person. This person was a Jewish man who lived in the first century. He was crucified under the rule of Pontius Pilate. He died, and like all dead people, he was buried. And then something very unexpected uh, happened. And the world hasn't been the same since. He came back to life. And we recite this historical reality each week in the creed. And one crucial aspect of this creed is that it locates Jesus in time. Paul tells us in Galatians that Jesus came at the appointed time. And he was crucified during the rule of a Roman governor. This is a crucial aspect of our faith and we so so we as a church are not a people gathered by abstract ideas or abstract teaching this isn't a, philo- a philosophical society right we are a people gathered around a real historical person and that is Jesus Christ and according to our creed he's still alive today and one day he will come again amen And we see this Christ-centeredness of the Christian year most clearly in the first half of the year. We have in Advent the expectation for the Messiah. We have the birth of the Messiah. He has come at Christmas. The manifestation of the Messiah to the whole world in Epiphany. And this includes the baptism of Christ, the first Sunday after Epiphany, and the transfiguration of Christ, the last Sunday of Epiphany. We have a time of preparation for the death of Christ in Lent. We have the final week of Christ in Holy Week. We have, of course, the resurrection at Easter and the 50 days that follow our Easter tide. We have Christ's return to the Father with the ascension. And then, of course, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So how does the church calendar shape our view of time? Outside of the church, Many of us live our daily lives according to the secular calendar, according to the work week, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, or variations of that theme. But our liturgy reminds us that we belong to another time and another place. And that time and place is best summed up in the phrase, the kingdom of God. Because of the realities of God's kingdom, we inhabit the present present time with a certain lightness of being, as Jamie Smith describes it. We are not slaves to the tyranny of the present. We don't have to live for the moment, believing uh, in the philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We relate to the present a bit like a time traveler. We live in the present, but we also inhabit the past and the future. So let's unpack that a bit. What does it mean to to live in the present, but to also inhabit the past and anticipate the future. The past. 
One thing we can certainly say about Christian worship is that it is situated in memory. The liturgical year moves us backward. And this primarily has to do with the practice of remembering. This is a habit we learn from the nation of Israel, from God's elect people. Worship is situated in memory. And we see this throughout the Psalms, where God's acts of redemption are recalled and recounted. Psalm 78, for instance, it's 72 verses long. And it begins with the Exodus and goes all the way up to the reign of King David, recounting God's faithfulness, his acts of redemption. We also see it in Mary's song, which becomes especially important this time of year, the Magnificat, how God has been faithful in the past. And we also see it in the first five sermons in the book of Acts, in chapters 2 through 7. Peter and the apostles connect Israel's story with the death and resurrection of Christ. They look to the past to understand the present and then the future. And then we see in the epistles that Paul and others talk about this power that was unleashed on Easter Sunday as a power that continues to break into the present. We are not the historical society of Jesus. We are people whose lives have been touched by his life, by his Easter Sunday power. And that's why we bother to get up this morning and come to church. At least I hope, hope that's the reason. The Christian year itself takes us into the past. It's an ancient inheritance. And as we inhabit it, we become a people older than our present. We become a, become a people who live between times, as it were. But we don't live in the past only. The church calendar is also future-oriented. We remember the past, but we anticipate the future. Why? Well, God's saving deeds in the past demonstrate that he will complete his work of redemption in the future. We look to the past to have faith for the future. Of course, it's easy to get impatient with this process, isn't it? God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And his timing is not our timing. If there's one thing you learn in the Christian life, it's that. God's timing is different than our timetable. With him, a thousand years is as one day. And remember, he is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So we have great expectations for the future. We earnestly hope and anticipate. And as with remembering God's saving acts in the past, we learn this disposition of hope from the nation of Israel. And we experience this directly during the season that begins today, Advent. In Advent, we once again become Israel. We recognize our sinfulness and need for God. And as we wait and we hope and we long, we pray for the Messiah to come because his coming means peace, justice, and shalom for all the earth. And this way that we do Advent is formative. It trains us in the virtues of patience and hope. And it also moves us out of our cultural tendency to focus only on the present. And we don't only do this during Advent. We do it, in fact, every Sunday when we recite the words of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. We do it every Sunday when we partake of the Lord's Table. We proclaim Christ's death until He comes. 
We acknowledge in the prayer of thanksgiving that we are heirs of God's eternal kingdom. Liturgical time helps us to remember our eternal destiny and identity in Christ. And because of our liturgical calendar, we get a taste of the glories that are to come. It's like a foretaste of what what is ours in Christ. We see a bit of this forthcoming reality in our Old Testament reading for today from Zechariah 14. And this passage, it speaks of a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, where God himself will be king over all the earth. And we're told that on that day, all things will be made holy and set aside for the Lord. Even horse bells will be inscribed with the words, holy to the Lord. Even cooking pots will be like offering bowls in the temple. Every pot and pan will be holy to the Lord. In other words, the the love and knowledge of the Lord will permeate every aspect of life. We see the same idea in one of Jesus' shortest parables. In fact, it's only a one-sentence parable. Let me read it. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom, when it comes fully, will be fully leavened. And as the eternal heirs of God's kingdom, we can envision the world that is like a restored garden. In a world of Delta and Omicron variants, we can envision a world free of endlessly mutating viruses. Amen? So the Christian calendar teaches us how to live in the past and the future to be people of memory and people of expectation. And to be sure, this is a strange place to live. It makes us a bit peculiar. Uh, As Jamie Smith puts it, we are stretched people, citizens of a kingdom that is both older and newer than anything offered by our own culture. We are paradoxical people. We are old souls who are oriented to the future. So with an eye on the past and on the future, our liturgical year frees us from the tyranny of the now from the panic of the present, from the cult of the new. Our society is obsessed with the new, with breaking news. And social media has only managed to make this worse. Our world is high on the drug of novelty. But this is a narcotic with diminishing returns. We are insatiably hungry for the next thing, the flavor of the week, the flavor of the month, the latest fad, the latest gadget, But this orientation does not teach us to be people of expectation or hope. Instead, we become self-entitled customers who demand the latest toy. And there's little hope in this vision of human flourishing. We as Christians are trained by liturgy to be out of sync with our times. We look to the past, not because we are traditionalists or nostalgic, but because we need reminders of God's faithfulness in the present. And we look to the future, not because we hate our own culture and cannot bear to live in the present, but because we all long for all things to be made new. We look for a kingdom that will break in on the present like a thief 
And speaking of the present, we must live in the present, too. Part of the reason we look to the past and long for the future is so we can find grace and hope to live faithful lives in the present. And when we look to the past, when we recount God's faithful deeds, we are not supposed to be passive spectators. Instead, as we're reminded of God's redemptive story, we are invited to find our place in that story. Good stories are captivating, right? Who doesn't enjoy a good story? And through liturgy, we can enter that story, we can experience that story, and we can meet the great storyteller himself. What an amazing thing. We do this in the first part of the church here, which centers around the key events in the life of Christ. And we do it in the second half of the church here, in ordinary time, when we consider our role in God's redemptive plan. In Advent, we anticipate God's coming in Christ in the present. In terms of the past, we think about Christ's first coming. In terms of the future, we anticipate his second coming. And there's a sense in which, maybe you noticed it, both comings of Christ get conflated in Advent. And that's intentional. Some have compared the two comings of Christ to twin peaks. And from a distance, it looks almost like one peak. But as we get closer, we realize it is in fact two peaks. The the people in the Old Testament generally saw it as one peak. And that's why they had a very difficult time wrapping their minds around the idea of a crucified Messiah. Their reading of the prophecies was complete, absolute messianic victory. Not a two-stage victory, as we see in the New Testament. So we in the church sort of live between these peaks. We look back and we see Christ's first coming, and we look forward to his second coming. And again, our anticipation of Christ is not passive. We're not in a doctor's waiting room, um, in the doctor's office's waiting room, trying to kill time. Instead, this is supposed to be active, edge edge of the seat, uh, edge of your seat kind of waiting, anticipation. Our New Testament reading is from 1 Thessalonians 3. And here we're told to stand fast in the Lord. This is Roman army imagery. It's a soldier in battle holding the line and standing fixed. And we see this idea of active waiting even more clearly in our gospel reading from Luke 21. Here in Luke 21, Jesus is telling his disciples about the future. Christ is both king and priest, but in this passage he is prophet, and he describes a world in great distress. People will be perplexed. Some will faint with fear. And then Jesus describes himself coming in glory and power. So how are we supposed to respond to this unique day known only to the Father? According to Jesus here, we are not supposed to go find a cave to hide in. We're not supposed to put our heads in the sand like an ostrich. Instead, Jesus tells us that we are to straighten up and raise our heads because our redemption is drawing near. We are to watch ourselves lest our hearts be trapped by the cares and pleasures of this life. And we are to stay awake at all times, praying that God will give us the strength to endure so we can stand before him on that final day. That is to be our posture during Advent, and really at all times. 
So I've been speaking of the benefits of the church calendar and how it teaches us to view time and live into time differently, how it can in fact shape us into the image of Christ, but I should mention a few caveats. First, the liturgical calendar is not a magical formula for spiritual growth. Some of the most dreary, boring services you'll ever attend are liturgical like ours. <laughs> and some of the most spiritually dead churches on the planet use the church calendar. For some of them, uh, it's really all that's left, just the trappings of the church here with the colors and the, the pageantry, if you will, the rituals. So though the church here remains a powerful context in which we can meet God and be transformed it's also a place where we can hide from God, just like the Garden of Eden. It's a place where we can go through the motions and have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And a second caveat about the church here, we have to be careful about the apparent correspondences between the secular calendar and our calendar. What do I mean by that? Well, we live in a culture that has a Christian heritage. Many have abandoned this heritage, but many traces are still there. And we, we see this in two specific holidays, Christmas and Easter. And though the name remains the same, there are significant differences between how we do the great feast of Christmas and how the world does it. Christmas, of course, in America has become primarily a consumer holiday. Yes, it's a time of wonderful, warm family gatherings, but for many, it's become a time of self-indulgence. And this season of consumption has been pushed back from Thanksgiving all the way to Halloween. Admittedly, this makes Advent a big challenge. Our culture encourages consumption and accumulation, but our Advent liturgy encourages penitence and self-denial. Our culture encourages instant gratification. Our Advent liturgy encourages expectation and restraint. So we need to be aware of this dissonance, remembering that there are times when our Christian liturgy, liturgy trumps our cultural liturgies. So today, we find ourselves back to the beginning of the church year, the first day of Advent, the first Sunday of Advent. So let me ask you a question as we take stock. What are your new church year resolutions? What resolutions do you have for the new year? How will you be more intentional about living as a Christian? How will you live into the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? How will you relate to the past? Will you remember God's saving acts so you can trust him in the present for the future? And how will you relate to the future? How will you actively wait for the fulfillment of God's promises? I can't come up with specific new church year resolutions for you. That's something you have to do on your own as you pray. But I would encourage you to, to pray and to take stock. And avoid the temptation to be a spectator. Instead, aim to live fully into God's story. And there's no, there's no time like the present. Advent is a great place to begin. So what kind of Advent calendar are you going to live by this year? One filled with candy and little plastic toys? 
or one filled with a painful realization of our need for God's grace and a longing for his kingdom to be fully realized. Our King and Savior now draws near. Oh, come, let us adore him.